Okay, so hello everyone. I'm broadcasting live now from uh, on August 22nd. I, um, as you, some of you may have noticed, I just did five minutes of sitting meditation, which uh, seems like not a very good example to set. But in my defense, uh, I just got in the door about 10 minutes ago because I was, I was getting this. This is a residential tenancy agreement. So tomorrow morning, we are going to sign this agreement. Right, Robin? Awesome. Uh, Anthony's coming over tonight because, well, we don't have to sign it, but if we don't sign it right away, they're going to show tomorrow they've got people already um, booked to see the house. So we asked, what's it going to take for us to be to secure this, uh, to have a certainty? And he said, well, nine o'clock tomorrow morning is what he said so tomorrow morning before nine o'clock we are going to complete this and we're going to have a monastery a meditation center a place move in on september 1st so but i mean that's technically robin Robin said, you're available September 7th? Yes, the Labor Day weekend. Well, Labor Day in the United States. So September 5th and 6th. So the 5th and the 6th, we'll have a weekend moving. I mean, we've got a truck here. The, the, the head monk can... The head monk can help us with his truck. So, we'll see. But then, yeah, that will be the beginning of sort of maybe a more um, sophisticated setup. We'll find a place to set up a studio. And there will be recording going on there. It should make it easier to do recordings. And then we'll have daily sessions like this, but hopefully with a live audience. So we'll have to set up the living room in such a way that, I mean, we don't expect huge groups of people. It's not a huge room. But in the small living room, we will be having, uh, allowing people to come, and hopefully people will come from McMaster to learn how to meditate. So I was thinking... Uh, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock will be kind of reserved to show people how to meditate. If you want to learn how to meditate, come by the house at 7 p.m. 8 to 9, we'll do uh, dedicated to an hour of meditation. Uh, this is a formal. If you want to come and meditate, come at 8 o'clock. And then 9 to 10, we reserve for this. <clears throat> Sound good? Sounds like a really good idea. Can't fix your audio tonight. 
It's not your audio, it's my audio. Just a second. It's a bit important because your your the sound I'm I'm recording your sound through this mic as well. So mm -hmm. So here it's gone back to what it shouldn't go back to. Okay, can you speak? Sure. Yeah, that was all it was. It was somehow it got to the wrong setting. So hopefully that's it. Okay. So anyway, good news. That is very good news. But we we now have the question of: Are we actually going to survive the year? So we do still, I, th I think um, that project on the internet does become somewhat critical. Well, maybe not critical, but we do have to be careful because we still have utilities and, you know, there's internet and telephone and that kind of thing. Anyway, we'll have, we'll have to have a meeting. So tomorrow, and there's the other thing is, Robin, tomorrow you're heading up the meeting? Yes, tomorrow. So go over that. Sure. Uh, tomorrow after the Dublin talk, we are planning a volunteer meeting. We still haven't quite figured out which platform. You had that open meetings, um, right. or if, it, if it's a smaller group, we can use Google Hangouts. Um, but we'll figure it out before then. Yeah, uh, so maybe, so I can try to set up that open meetings platform. I never had too much luck with it before. Hopefully it's advanced now to the point where it's more user-friendly, but there's a lot of little, like it, it depends on stuff and you have to get that stuff working correctly. Anyway, does that, if anyone has experience with open meetings, or I think it's Java-based, so... Does anyone know anything about a Linux server and wants to help me muck around with our Ubuntu server? Let me know uh, in case something goes wrong. But then maybe, so tomorrow morning I have to do this. We have to go to Eastgate. My shoes broke today, so I have to, Anthony's coming tonight, uh, our treasurer. Tomorrow we're going to Eastgate. That's where the person is who's going to sign the paper, Eastgate Mall, the mall. And while I'm there, hopefully I'll get some some sandals. Anthony will help with that. And then I'll come back and I'll try to see about setting up open meetings. But depending on how many people you expect tomorrow, we could uh, we could just use Google Hangouts, right? We can use Google Hangouts. And if it's a, a bigger group, then Google Hangouts can accommodate. We, we could use Mumble just to kind of get through the first week. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's all a, all a work in progress. I'll try to set up um, try to set up open meetings, see if it actually works. Can't remember, but it didn't it wasn't very oh no it, yeah. I never got it to work successfully, I don't think. We'll see. 
There's Skype also, but people sometimes have concerns about Skype. It's kind of mm -hmm. buggy. And mm -hmm. By this time tomorrow, we'll we'll have something figured out. So did you already say when it is to give the time and everything? Uh, it's right after the Dhamma talk tomorrow night, so 9.30. Right. 9.30. So yeah, so we'll announce it again then. But anyone who's planning, and the meeting is for volunteers, so anybody who wants to get involved, sort of get into the inner circle of our cult, you know. Uh, if you want to join the, well, it just means if you want to help be a volunteer. So probably what we're going to do, we were talking, is we're going to set up a mailing list. We've got a mailing list, and some of you might be on that mailing list. Some people who are on the mailing list might no longer have anything to do with us. We haven't used the mailing list for anything, but it's there. Once we have that all figured out, that'll be our general mailing list. And then we'll have a smaller mailing list for volunteers. And we'll have one volunteer. Uh, Robin has said she would do it, but, you know, if someone else wanted to, then, you know, spread the work around. Send a newsletter out to the, to the general mailing list to let everyone know what's going on. And the newsletter before you send it out i could add something updates from me and that kind of thing another thing we should probably do is set up some web page on our site giving a breakdown of expenses so we're all clear exactly what this is all about what exactly is our requirements anyway Enough about that, all in good time. Today, we have a quote. Would you like to read the quote, Robin? Sure. Okay. Venerable Ananda went to the house, leaned against the doorpost and wept, saying, I am but a learner. I still have to attain perfection. But alas, my teacher, he who is so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. Then the Lord asked the monks, where is Ananda? And they told him, and the Lord said, Go, monks, and say to Ananda, Friend Ananda, the Lord calls you. When Ananda came, the Lord said to him, Enough, Ananda, do not cry. Have I not taught that it is the nature of all things beloved that we must suffer separation from them and be suffered, severed from them? For that which is born, come to be, and is compounded, is also subject to dissolution. How could it be otherwise? For a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata with thoughts of love, with words of love, and with deeds of love, graciously, unstintingly, and wholeheartedly. You have gathered great good. Now put forth energy, and soon you too will be free from defilements. This is one of those scenes, if you will, scenes from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. The Mahaparinibbana Sutta, you could probably make a movie out of it. Now, that would be a Buddhist movie worth seeing. Big gripe about in all Buddhist movies is they tend to focus on the time before uh, the Enlightenment, right? You think of Little Buddha. Uh, what are the other ones? I don't know. And there's cartoons. But even most of the cartoons tend to focus more on... I mean, it's much more of a story before he became Buddha. Once he was a Buddha, I guess he was kind of boring at that point. And that's how people... You know, one monk argued with me and said, no, the problem is 
you can't find anyone to play the Buddha. Hmm? You, you know, portraying the Buddha on screen is not not kosher. There was a Thai movie, 2003, called Angulimala, based on the story of Angulimala. And they showed the Buddha from very far away. If, uh, if any of you are interested, I have a video where I mashed, mashed together. Have you seen that video, Robin? I haven't seen it now. Gosh, it's such an it's such it's the best part of that movie. The rest of it, it's mostly just killing. <laughs> the whole movie is mostly just killing people. But this one part, let's see. Do you remember um, the Tiger Woods scandal? Right, everyone remembers Tiger Woods. Sure. Do you remember the Christian pastors saying it was because he wasn't Christian, or or his his big no the solution to his problem was Christianity yeah basically that because he wasn't Christian and he said in Bud and one of the pastors said in Buddhism there is no um, forgiveness forgiveness and redemption let's see if I can find this video back based on those keywords yes exactly forgiveness and redemption in Buddhism. So can we, I can put this up here, let me see. It's not even really related to this, but just because I'm going to rant about uh, good Buddhist movies. YouTube gadget. Welcome to YouTube's in the Hangout. Click add video. How do I add video? Click on add video. Where's the add video button? Oh, here. Okay. You, you're watching that, right? Okay, you're muted though. So this is after he's killed lots and lots of people. And he's just run after the Buddha. I skipped that because I had a limit of 10 minutes. Back then I was only doing 10 minute videos. I'm not sure that it's coming out on YouTube though, the video. Oh no? Doesn't seem to be, no. Oh, here it is. I don't think it's coming out on YouTube. Uh, are you watching on YouTube? Well, yes, I'm watching the two screens. So for people watching on YouTube, the Angulamala movie is 
playing in the Hangout, but apparently it's not going over to YouTube. So. Hmm. Strange. Oh, well, then I won't play it if it's not working. But you have to watch that video. Anyway, it's totally not related to what we're talking about. But that's one movie that actually did. It shows that the Buddha's life is worth putting to film and can be successfully put to film. Those those scenes that I cut out, to me, were the, the ones uh, that you know were very much worth putting to film and... and really tell and tell several messages tell several you know give several messages one is this interesting it's actually an ad adaptation um the uh, the the meeting with between angulimala and the buddha the buddha goes through the three characteristics he teaches him because angulimala has this sphere that he's focusing on to enter into the jhanas which isn't in, this isn't in the sutta, so they've adapted it, but they did a really good adaptation in my mind. And he, he, he says, okay, let's take this thing that you think is the self, because he thought of this little ball as being the self. And he says, let's take this and think about what you've heard that I teach, that I teach impermanent suffering and non-self. And he says, ask yourself if that's really permanent. Is it stable? And the thing winks. It, it, it changes. And he realizes that it's impermanent. I mean... Anyway, let me, I'll get to it. And then he says, well, ask yourself if it's true happiness. And then he sees, it, it's a visualization of, of, you know, obviously it wouldn't be exactly like this in reality, but he sees it turn kind of ugly, you know? Because once he actually looks at it objectively, he realizes that he's just deluding himself. And the third one is itself, is it, is it the true self? You know, is it yours? You are yours. And it breaks into pieces. And instead of being a whole, he sees that it's made up of little parts and it crumbles and then it disappears. And this is what you do find. When people who practice samatha and think they found Nibbana, there was a story of a very famous monk in Thailand who is now the icon. He's passed away, but he's the, what do you call the figurehead that they use in this huge cult in Thailand, the huge cult in Thailand. And he went to practice vipassana meditation in the same tradition that we practice at wat mahatat and he went he was he was already a famous monk at the time but he went with the queen uh, sorry the mother of the king at the time the two of them went together um or you know around the same time i'm not sure exactly how it worked but they went to practice this new kind of meditation that was coming up in thailand because up until that point everyone had practiced samatha and he had the same, he was, he had taught meditation based on this crystal, you know, seeing this crystal and moving the crystal down your body and that kind of thing. And he said, I saw this. And this teacher, well, first he said, I saw a bunch of monks. And the teacher said, oh, very, very good. Ajahn Lumpo Chodok is telling this story. You have to hear him tell it. I said, oh, yeah, very good, very good. Just acknowledge, no? Make sure that you acknowledge. I just, just add this to, add this some sort of addition to your practice say to yourself seeing seeing and he said okay and so he went away came back the next day and said i saw the dhammakaya 
And he said, what's the Dhammakaya? Oh, it was this crystal, beautiful crystal that I saw. And he said, oh, very good, very good. Just make sure that you say to yourself, seeing, seeing. And uh, and he went he went away. He said, okay. And so he went away and did seeing, seeing, until it disappeared. And then he came back the next day and he was totally... Uh, blown exactly like Angulimala. The, the 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 reaction that Lumpo Chodo describes is exactly what you see in this in this movie. It disappeared, and he couldn't get it back because that's the thing with samatha. It's it's not you. It's not yours. You think you're in control, but if you change the the parameters even slightly, you can lose it and have a very hard time getting it back. You realize this is what people say. They have a really good meditation. And then they spend the next meditation trying to get that sense of calm back, thinking that they, they created it. It's it's not self. It's it's impermanent suffering. It's not self. It's it's slippery. And so he was he said, he said, I've been I've been practicing for so many years and I feel like I've been wasting my time, the waste of my life. You know, I thought this was this thing that I saw was the true uh, goal and, and st truly stable and now I've seen it just disappear like nothing and and be totally out of my reach this is called in, in Vipassana terms this is uh, Udaya Bayanyana which leads to Banganyana which leads to Bayanyana Bayanyana is this fear he was totally Angulimala shows these Udaya Bayanyana Banganyana Bayanyana three of the the first three Vipassana knowledges he exhibits them so clearly that I thought this movie, I don't know whether they knew this or whether they were intending or they just happened to get it right, but it's amazing to me that a movie that was supposed to at least be partially entertainment turned out to be a, an incredible example of uh, the, the, the problem really with Samatha and how it leads you. If you, have, if you watch the whole movie and get good a good version of the subtitles, I don't know that the subtitles are all that good. I made a better version, but I don't know if I still have it. Uh, it shows this progression where he deludes himself into thinking he's reached some special state. And it, I mean, it's an adaptation. It's not exactly according to suttas. Anyway, the overarching point was that um, it would be great to see this sort of thing, and it's a great use of, of the media. Now, I've thought about taking the suttas and making uh, making videos of the suttas. So, you know, take a monk for... So I could put myself in the video and go up to the Buddha as one of the monks and, and recite, you know, my part, have a voice. You know, you can't show the Buddha. It's not considered kosher to do that. So... Uh, we could have like some representation like a bright light or something and have the Buddha speech and we could do it in Pali with subtitles even. And you could do various teachings this way, video teachings, reenactments re of the suttas. have to find a forest somewhere. But that's a project that someday I think someone should do. Anyway, point being that this is one of those, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta is somewhat emotional you know i mean it's or dramatic is the word it's got scenes like this that are dramatic and it's got a lot in it it's really a a mini epic i mean it's not an epic but it's it's got sort of the qualities of a real story the real buddhist epic i don't know if anyone knows this is 
the Maha Umaga Jataka. If you want a real, a true Buddhist epic that's just of awesome proportions, and if you're the kind of person who doesn't mind the fact that the Jatakas are sometimes a bit unbelievable, if you don't mind that, reading this just purely for its literary and inspirational value, like the idea of someone being good, wise, uh, dedicated to you know, uh, truth, justice, not really Buddhist, you know, it doesn't delve deeply into Buddhist theory, but the story of Mahosada is, uh, there are 547 jatakas, and only one of them, th this jataka is 10 times the size of any of the other jatakas, it's, it's, it's long, it's the jataka, and it's very unknown, you know, most Buddhists don't know about the Mahamaga jataka. And it's just, a, it's quite a story. And to, so to make a movie out of that, and you can just read it online, it's, it's available in English. So it's a shame that more people don't know. I mean, it's not deep Buddhist wisdom or anything, but as, as a story and as inspirational material, it's, it really gives you a sense of the bodhisattva's perfection of wisdom, I think. I mean, it's just a story and it's sometimes a little over the top, but if you because if you compare it to like the odyssey right the odyssey is the classical epic well odyssey is not a buddhist story and you've got him killing people and and the good guys don't act so much like good guys according to buddhism if you read the hindu epics the mahabharata the ramayana the heroes aren't buddhist heroes you know they're not they're not terribly buddhist they kill and lie sometimes cheat steel even who knows they aren't as noble they aren't noble enough on a buddhist um, under, under buddhist criteria anyway yeah read the Mahoma. anyway all of this is tangentially related but here we have the story of ananda ananda has a bit of a complex here at this point i think because it was his responsibility to ask the buddha to stick around and he didn't and it's an interesting point because you think well why didn't the buddha just stick around <laughs> you know if the buddha if it was appropriate why didn't the buddha do it you could argue one way of explaining it is you could say he was making a point i mean that's not the ultimate truth but it's part of the truth if the Buddha had, of his own volition, stuck around, people would think, you know, why is the Buddha doing more than than expected of him? He made a vow after his enlightenment and after he was invited to teach, he made a vow not to enter into Parinibbana before all of the the male monks, female monks, male lay disciples, female lay disciples were... Uh, grounded in the Dhamma and able to teach the Dhamma and so at 80 years old this was accomplished and he gave up the will to live but the story goes that Mara came and reminded him of this fact because Mara didn't like the fact that the Buddha was leading people out of samsara Mara is one of these high angels who likes to control people likes to manipulate them likes to encourage them to stay in samsara 
So at most, he tells, he says, if you want to be a good person, just do good deeds. Because good people who do good deeds are still in samsara. Anyway, so Mara came up and reminded him of this fact, and the Buddha said, enough, it's time. Uh, you don't have to, to, to invite me, I'm ready to go. And he gave up the will to live. Because he'd done his, his duty. I mean, he wasn't, in the end, he's not going to live forever. And enough was enough. But the funny, it's it's really an interesting, you know, it's, it's quirky kind of, because if he had been asked to live, if he had been asked to continue on, he would have stayed until he, he would have not given up the will to live and would have lived, they say, to 120. That's what the commentary says. He would have lived longer anyway. And he didn't do that. So Ananda felt, probably felt somewhat responsible for this because the Buddha gave a clear indication. The Buddha said to Ananda, he said, if someone were to ask, uh, it, it would be possible to stay. But they say that Mara was manipulating Ananda. I don't know. Anyway, not really the important part. But the point was he's probably feeling a little bit guilty at this point, if you follow the story. But more than that, he was he loved the Buddha very much. If you read the commentary's description of how dedicated Ananda was to the Buddha, he didn't have enough time to meditate on his own because he spent all his time waiting upon the Buddha, I think something like five times a day, putting out bath water, sweeping out his kuti, preparing, you know, setting out his, I don't know, his bowl, his robes, washing his robes, doing everything for him basically and and he who did teachings i mean ananda was in many ways he's people tend to tend to um, gravitate towards him i mean in modern times when you read about ananda people tend to identify with him because he was sort of the all-around good guy you know being so devoted to the buddha being so kind he was the one who um, worked to get the bhikkhunis started, you know, worked to have the Buddha accept the bhikkhunis, the bhikkhuni order. He was very helpful to women, worked um, tirelessly to make sure that they received the teachings from the Buddha and, and that everything was passed on to them. He was uh, the one who taught Queen... Uh, Samawati, I believe. No, is that correct? I think so. Anyway, he was involved with teaching queens who wanted to learn because the queens in those times were like slaves. They weren't allowed out of the castle because the kings were very jealous. And so they, in order to learn the Dhamma, the monks had to go into the... No, maybe it was... Uh, maybe I'm thinking of uh, Bimbisara's wife. Can't remember. Hmm. Anyway, wasn't Ananda the one that became enlightened right at the last minute before the first Buddhist council? Right. Yes, that was pressure. Yeah, yeah, because the Buddha said he would become an arahant after the Buddha passed away. The Buddha foretold it, if you go by the text. So the texts say. So Ananda was like, "Why isn't it happening? Why isn't it working? Why am I not getting it?" which, you know, is a, probably a bad attitude and probably contributed to his inability to become enlightened until he finally let go and tried, decided to lie down and his faculties balanced out and his mind slipped into the groove that's 
needed and he just went so what's the lesson from this first lesson is not to cry <laughs> when you lose things the, the first lesson I think in detail in specific specifically is that uh, enlightenment means seeing that things arise and cease seeing that things arise and cease taking this uh, as your 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 viewpoint the way you approach reality because everyone knows that things arise and cease buddha says you know this right uh, so we all know this if i ask you you know do things does everything that arises also cease You'd think about it for a second and you'd say, yeah, of course. Things that arise cease. Everything, this teapot will one day not be a teapot. It's no longer a teapot. It's now a water bottle. But uh, one day it will be demolished. That's the way of things. But we don't approach reality that way. We're, we're, me we're messed up. You know, we Even with that truth, we are surprised, shocked, saddened overwhelmed with loss when it turns out to be true you know when the uncertainty of life comes to pass we know that we could die anytime we know that the people around us could die anytime yet when there's a tragedy we call it a tragedy and we'd say oh they went before their time no they didn't they went exactly at their time i mean whatever that means they went it's how it happens there's another really good jataka that i always bring up at funerals called the Uraga Jataka Uraga means one who goes by their chest do you know who that is? one who goes by their chest do you know what that refers to? does anyone know what an Uraga is? one who goes by their chest one who travels on their on their stomach basically like a worm or a snake? a snake Uraga means ga means guys from gum, right? The root to go, meaning to go. So ga is one is one who goes. Ura is the chest. So uraga is it's a word for snake, but it literally means one who goes anyway. The Uraga Jataka, the snake jataka, a snake bites the bodhisattva's son. And definitely worth looking up as well. I went I read when I was in, in up on the mountain above Chiang Mai, I read all five hundred and forty seven of the Jatakas. I recommend it if you happen to be you know well, if you've got the time like I have. I uh, recommend reading all five hundred and forty seven of them because it's not deep Buddhism, but it really gives you a sense of Buddhist culture. And then you get gems like the Uraga Jataka, which is really quite um moving and and remarkable. The Kanha Jataka I mentioned before, the Black Jataka, number 440, definitely an inspirational Jataka. Definitely, and it's inspirational for its treatment of, of, of skin color, I think. You know, the idea of racism, and it's a big thing in India, in Hinduism. But the the Uraga Jataka is about the the, the understand the um, cultivation of a knowledge of death, reminding yourself about death so that death doesn't scare you. You've we've worked it through. 
I, I used to, or I'd still do this, this practice on the airplane of envisioning the airplane when, when we're landing, reminding myself, hey, this, we could crash, you know. It's useful because airplanes are so powerful, they hardly ever crash. Few, very few people ever die from airplanes. But it's such a big, the reason why it's so big news is because airplanes are powerful. It's something that really shouldn't happen. It's amazing that we're hurtling through the air like this. So it's a big deal. And as a result, it's a good opportunity to reflect on death. What would it be like for this plane to explode into flames and all of us to die? And having these, this is what meditation on death does. It, it, it evokes a feeling in your mind and it, it tests you to see whether you have this, this vulnerability. And if you do it often enough, eventually you become neutralized to it. You no longer are shocked by the truth. The truth is that everything ceases. And when you get comfortable with that, it no longer affects you, no longer upsets you. And that goes for conventions like conventional death, and it also goes for individual experiences. When you get right down to it, all of our experiences are, well, understanding of all of our experiences and, and, and familiarity with experience is really enough to, to make you immune to it. You don't react to something if it's familiar to you, if you're comfortable with it, right? If it happens to you a thousand times, it's, it loses its shock value. I mean, to some extent, unless you cultivate bad habits. But if you cultivate this sense of eventually, things that bother you don't bother you anymore because you've been uh, exposed to it. So this is a theory people have of exposure now. Exposure in and of itself, we would say, isn't enough because it can actually lead to, you know, deeper problems if you're suppressing fear or that kind of thing. But the point here is that true knowledge, when you truly see things just as arising and ceasing, I mean, it doesn't seem like a profound teaching because everyone really knows this. The problem is that's not how we approach things. We approach things not as, oh, this has arisen, it's going to cease. We approach it as, this has arisen, may it not cease. Or this has arisen, may it get lost as soon as possible, right? May I be in control of it? Or with the delusion, actually, that we are in control of it. I'm going to make this cease. I'm going to make this stay. Right? With the partiality, this I want to stay, this I want to go. With the um, delusion that this can stay, this can be controlled to go or this can be made to go not not understanding that it's totally out of our hands it's based on causes and effect or that it's not totally out of our hands but there is no us right to be orchestrating it our mind is just one factor anthony just sent the message he's waiting for the go train I should maybe offer to go pick him up. Maybe we can go pick him up. Anyway. I think I'll stop it there because I've been talking for a while. That's the big lesson to learn here. The rest about Ananda is, is praise of him. doesn't work so well for us. I mean, we should all feel encouraged by the good that we've done. Thinking about good deeds, thinking about good deeds that you've done is useful. Don't ever discount the good deeds that you've done. Don't be afraid to... Not feel proud, but feel encouraged. 
It doesn't have to be pride. It can be a sense of encouragement. I'm not an evil person. I may do sometimes bad deeds. I may not be perfect, but I have done good. I am capable of good. Let me continue to do good as best I can. So that's maybe the other takeaway from this. Let's do a few questions, but I'll try to be off of here by 10 if possible. Sure. We have a couple of questions from people who can't be here live because they're in Europe and it's 3.30 in the morning mm. or they are working. So they sent along a couple of questions and asked if I would ask them on their behalf. Is that okay? Cheaters. Pardon? Cheaters. Well, it is it is 3.30 in the morning in the UK, so I, I can sympathize with the Samantha, she Samantha is one of our new volunteers. I don't know if it's Samantha or Samantha. I think it's a Sri Lankan person named Samantha, which is actually a male, I think, a male Sri Lankan name. I'm not sure. Do you know okay. it's a woman? <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't thinking about the pronunciation. I'm not, I, think I wasn't thinking about it. Yeah. Maybe Samantha, but if it's, if it's Buddhist, I think it's more likely to be Samantha. Samantha, okay which means I think it's also a man. Okay. Well, in any case, um, the question is, while meditating, how can you tell if you're suppressing an emotion or not? Well, suppressing is actually not quite accurate. It's not like a, a, a beach ball that you can push underwater and keep it submerged. Suppressing is in, inexact. You don't suppress, you react. So if I get angry, the anger has come and gone. The reaction that feels like suppressing is, you could say preventing or redirecting the mind, but it's definitely reacting and it's tensing up to keep the mind from thinking. You know, you redirect the mind means you give rise to mind states that totally overwhelm, overload the mind, like you clench up like this. You, you know, people who do this, la, 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 I'm not, and I'm not, not going to think it, don't think it, don't think it. The idea is to overload the mind and keep it so busy that it doesn't have an opportunity to go. I mean, some Buddhist meditations are like that. Meditation on love prevents anger from arising. So you could say it suppresses the anger, but it doesn't technically submerge or anything. It, it replaces, it um, prevents it from arising because mind states don't last for more than a moment so it's not a thing that you could suppress the anger arises and ceases the next moment is going to be the reaction or no the the um, consequences of getting angry which would be fighting yelling uh, running or suppressing feeling guilty feeling bad about it that kind of thing Thank you. Yeah, the person on Sangha website, are you sure it was a woman named Samantha or was it Samantha? Yeah. It could be a man. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure about the pronunciation. I, I'm not sure. Come to think Samantha is a word that means all-encompassing. I think it's a Sinhalese name. Oh, okay. And the other question is... Um, In meditation, when I hear sounds, I note hearing, hearing. However, is it not more beneficial to simply listen and focus on the sound rather than let label the experience? I'm clear with the process of labeling thoughts 
In other words, if I begin to think I can, then be aware of the thoughts and label them, but applying this to hearing seems different and confusing because I feel the hearing is happening on its own rather than it is me that is making an effort to hear. Would a better label be sounds, sounds rather than hearing, hearing? No, I think probably what you're getting is the impermanent suffering and non-self of it. You know, it's disconcerting to say hearing, hearing. It's a bit jarring, in fact, because as you say, the sound has nothing to do with you saying hearing, hearing. And it feels different in the beginning anyway. It feels different when you do walking. It feels like I'm making it happen, and I'm also timing the word with the, the movement, but you're not making it happen. There's a moment where the mind instigates it, but much of it is just physical. It it it's an it's a ignorance or it's you know it's a misconception. So you that's actually hearing can be quite useful for that reason because it's kind of jarring and you can't expect it. The reason why we like music is because you it's a it's a sound that you can expect. Why is music a sound that's preferred? Because it's got a rhythm, and you can come to expect it. And then when it changes, it excites you because you you can't expect it. But then it's very quick. Successful music is quick to, to, to give it back to you, to give the rhythm back to you, you see? So they have the cymbal crashes that excite you or something like a drum roll, but then it gets back into the rhythm that you can predict it. This is science. This isn't even Buddhism. I read somewhere, but there are studies that say the reason why we like music is the ability to predict, predict the rhythm. My sound, try it on me speaking, and you'll find it's a totally different situation. Say to yourself, hearing, hearing, and it's it's jarring. Um, you you see that you're not in control of the sound, and that somehow upsets the mind. It gets easier and it gets better as you start to give up the need to control. You'll find yourself m more able to just say hearing, hearing. But the difference is the a mantra is something that keeps your mind focused. Um, that's true for tranquility meditation. What we're learning in the Visuddhimagga is this is the traditional way to do meditation. We're just adapting that concept to ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is the same if you want to focus on it. Mindfulness, what we call mindfulness, is what is the quality of mind that you get from reminding yourself, from um, straightening the mind so that you grasp the object um, clearly and completely and that comes from so that comes from the mantra which has the same effect as it would with the samatha meditation object focusing the mind keeping the mind fixed on the object the other thing about noting is it is honest it forces you to be honest it's artificial which means you have no control you know, if you say, I'm just going to listen, I'm just going to hear and be objective, well, it's easy, it's it's fine to say that. But what you're doing is just letting your mind, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's possible. You can become enlightened doing that, for sure. You can also, you know, go any number of ways because there's no guideline. There's no structure. When you're forced to say hearing, hearing, you have no choice but to be totally objective you're much less likely to go off track. This is why I can pretty much guarantee that none of my students will ever go crazy from practicing my teaching. You know, as long as I'm there with them every day to keep them on track and to keep them doing it correctly, you will never go crazy with this teaching. You can't. Because 
it doesn't let you get carried away. You have you're you're forced to come back. I even think people who ha I've never had a student, but I'd like to try with someone who has like schizophrenia and work with them. I suppose what would probably happen with many people is they'd run away, stop practicing, just quit and do their own thing. You know that happens. People get overwhelmed by it, but. I think with someone who is sincere enough, you could even help people who have serious mental illnesses. I think. Anyway, I hope that provides some argument as to why you shouldn't just be quick to give up noting. It creates patience as well. It's not easy. Noting is going to challenge you. But Buddhism should challenge you. If you're not totally... I was saying today, we were talking about... Um, I was talking with David, who lives downstairs. He just got back uh, from heart surgery. They cut his chest open and went in and did something to a valve or something. Um, I was talking to him. I don't remember how it came up, but I said, if Buddhism doesn't totally rock your world, like to the core, shake your foundation, then it's, you know, it's not what it claims to be. How could it possibly be what it claims to be? And this is what we don't get. We expect that it's going to be, oh, I didn't think of that. <laughs> no, not quite. No, it's going to be, oh, I get it. No, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be like, what? No, like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm totally, I've been, you know, I'm, my pants are inside out kind of thing. It's going to be totally, I've been, I've been, I've been doing this wrong the whole time. A little disorienting. It should be mind-blowing. I mean, it, it challenging. It challenges you to give up everything, give up every preconceived notion that you have. Just scrolling through for questions here. How was Angulamalt? Angulamala able to advance so fast in his practice with so corrupted of a mind? He had done a lot of work in the past. He had, you know, he actually had good intentions. The story seems to suggest that he wasn't really, you know, he didn't want to kill people. He was deluded into thinking that it was the way to enlightenment somehow that he was helping the movie does a really good job with this though, though it's not canonical the movie starts off with him looking after goats sacrificial goats and he saw all these sacrificial goats were being slaughtered you know he would befriend them and look after them and then they all get killed and he said i don't want them to die and the big guru says to him you know when they die they go to heaven and that's you know the movie does a really good job of of explaining it it's just, I think it's a magnificent, without all the killing, I mean, there's total blood, gore, violence everywhere, but um, he gets, so he, he starts to cultivate this perverted con concept of, of you know, which, which Hindus tend to have, that when you kill them, they go to heaven. And so in the movie, that's how it got to that point where, and this isn't canonical, but um, where he believed he was sending them to heaven. You know, these people were all being purified by him. I mean, it evolves, and there's more happens, and there's a woman involved, so you know how that is. I shouldn't have said that, probably. 
That's a good explanation, though. Of you know, I had no idea um, that. Of well, that's not canonical, but the movie does a really good job of offering yeah. one one interpretation. I mean, there are still people that have that delusion, and people kill their children yeah. and all kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, absolutely, they that's true. Doing the right thing. It's. Yep. Yeah. Cults that um, believe they have ritual suicides. Does it matter what label you use when noting? It should be the best one you have for the experience. I mean, if you're thinking and you say chicken, it's not really, I don't know, if you say, if you feel pain and you say happy, not a good one. You know, some people in the beginning, they're not really listening when you tell them. So often I get people who the first couple of days, or at least the first day, um, take up saying no pain no pain <laughs> when they have pain because that's what they want they think yeah the idea is to say no pain no pain and it'll go away so they they, they get it totally wrong or they want to say they say happy happy when they're unhappy because they want to feel happy because they think saying happy is going to magically create happiness it actually might temporarily but it's certainly not sustainable nor is it the goal so it's not a magic, the word isn't magical, where if you pick the right word, poof, you become enlightened. But it should be the best word that you have for the experience. Because that's the purpose. The purpose is to focus it on the experience. So what is that experience to you? Sometimes it's just a feeling, and feeling is sort of a miscellaneous. Then just say feeling. If you are aware of something, anything, just say knowing is enough. General words like that, or you don't have to get too specific. But Mahasi Sayada does give examples of saying, remembering, planning, and so on. So, if it's kind of a complex, if you're doing complex things, and it would be, you'd be spending all your energy trying to figure out the exact right word for each little thing, it's okay to make a general. It's okay, no. for sure. But it's also, you know, you, you get better at that. Like, once you've been doing it for a while, you, it's not difficult. I mean, we only have so many movements. This is shrugging or whatever, you know, moving. You know? When you open the door, it's turning, pulling. When you talk, your lips are moving. You feel the lips moving, you can say feeling. When you swallow, it's swallowing. I mean, you get, it's a skill. So it's not something that should just come natural either it's something in many ways we get better at as you cultivate it keep that in mind thank you i think we might have actually gotten all the questions there's a lot in here but i don't think there's any questions Why do you use the labels rising and falling for the breath? We don't. No, We're not meditating on the breath. We're meditating on Vayodhatu. Why? Because the breath doesn't actually exist. The breath is not what you experience. What you experience are the four elements. Actually, apparently you only experience three of the elements. The fourth element is just assumed to exist because it's required to keep things together. It's the sticky element. But the other three are what you experience. So the earth element is hardness and softness. The air element is stiffness or flaccidity. 
like unstiffness, not stiff. Uh, and the third one is heat and cold. So when you watch here at the nose, you experience heat or cold, and that's dejodato, it's the fire element. If, or you f when you feel the pressure on your lip, that's the air element as well, the pressure element. But none of that can, can compete with the grossness of the, um, of the expanding and contracting. If you're asking why we use the words rising and falling for this, blame English. I mean, I've, I've remarked, I often have to remark to people who are non-native English speakers, I apologize for the use of the words and please feel free to say expanding, contracting, because this isn't really rising and this isn't really falling. It's, you know, it's like bread rises and falls or something. Um, if you're lying down and you look at a baby lying down, it rises and falls, but otherwise this is an expansion, this is a contraction. So rising, falling is a bad word. It's not the original words. The original words that, that, that they used, well, from the ones that they used in Burma, ade pinde, apparently. Ade is, is expanding, pinde, or pinde, or however, is contracting. In Thai, it's pong, no? Pong is this inflating. Yup is contracting, or, or, or kind of like falling, but collapsing. Pong, no? Yup, no? Pong, no? Yup, no? Sri Lankan is bim bim hekilim. Uh, French gonfle dégonfle is expand uh, inflating deflating German is haben sinken haben is heaving I think no isn't it I don't know exactly sinken is sinking but not exactly I used to know uh, Jewish is Hebrew as well what else Spanish I don't know Spanish If you're not a native English speaker, rising, falling is a bit confusing. If that's what you're confused about, I understand and can say blame English language. Because to me, it's fine. When I say rising, I know this is rising. But probably I would still be better off saying expanding because technically it's an expansion and that's what's happening. But, you know, because it's so familiar to a native English speaker that, it, it, you know, it clearly ties us into that movement, rising and falling. But it it's only works for a native speaker, I think. So that is a, a valid point that we have to keep in mind. Definitely. <laughs> Inha inha rising, exhale falling. Inhaling, exhaling. But inhaling doesn't work because that's not. This is inhaling. This is exhaling, and we don't actually inhale or exhale. The experience is not. You could do it. It's. I mean, I'm nitpicking, but it's not the best. The best is to focus on a point. That's where vipassana can flourish. And the most gross, obvious point is this one. Often not in the beginning, unfortunately. In the beginning, we're too tense. And you can get this by lying on your back. If you lie on your back, you can see that natural breathing is very much in the stomach. I mean, when I first learned to meditate when I was 13 years old in karate, in martial arts, they taught us to breathe below your belly button. You know, this is the way deep, deep breathing, and that's how they do it in India. It's supposed to come deep from your belly, I think. Um, so, I mean, it's a standard. This is where breath comes. It's just for most of us, we're so stressed that um, we don't, 
We breathe from the chest. That's not very healthy. But if you sit up, if you see the sitting up is different from lying down. It's because sitting up, we, are, we have too much tension. Asasami, pasasami is samatha meditation. That's breathing in and breathing out. But it's samatha. Because you're not breathing in, you're not breathing out. It's a concept. But it works because this is an in-breath, this is an out-breath. Actually, Anapanasati is a bit difficult to categorize, and some people are critical of the Visuddhimagga for the way it explains Anapanasati. Anapanasati is complicated because some version of what you could call Anapanasati is Vipassana. This, uh, my teacher calls this Anapanasati. No, it's just a word. It is mindfulness of the breath. It's just not technically mindfulness of the breath. Expandiendo, contrayendo, contrayendo. Hmm. Is that what they use, or did you just come up with those yourself? Because we have Spanish meditators. I don't know if that's what they actually use. Expandiendo, contrayendo. Anyway, 10 o'clock. I have to go because Anthony is going to be here. Hopefully we can find a way to get him a ride. Otherwise, uh, anyway, we're going to have a little bit of discussing and I have to fill out this form tonight and tomorrow morning early. We have to bring it to the mall. So thanks everyone for tuning in. And thank on you, YouTube as well. And thank you, Robin. Have a good night. Good luck tomorrow. Thank you.